Talking Movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rod Sonny. I'm your other co-host, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Um, as we previewed earlier in the week, we are continuing our Christopher Nolan series today discussing Dunkirk. Um, Sam, I have a theory to toss to you, and I don't even really think it's like a hot take, but okay. I don't necessarily know if Dunkirk... Dunkirk is in my top four, probably top five Christopher Nolan movies. Um, And it's definitely not my favorite, but I think it's his best movie. Hmm. I was about to say, I thought you were about to say that it's your favorite war movie of all time. That it is, actually. That it is. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, because you 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 told me yourself you don't like war movies. Yeah, like, I think Saving Private Ryan is a little overrated. Um, I like 1917, but it's sort of, I've forgotten a lot about it since it came out. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think, actually, let me let me ask you first, like, where does this sort of rank in the Christopher Nolan filmography for you and whatnot? Uh, it's hard to say, because I still haven't seen Insomnia, I still haven't seen Following, but I don't mm-hmm. think those would hit very high for me personally, because I've seen, like, clips and trailers for, for it at least, but for mm-hmm. Dunkirk... The first go around, I wouldn't put it as high, but this second go around, for the purpose of this podcast, I rewatched this, rewatched it, mm-hmm. and it's much higher for me. I would say four or five, maybe, maybe okay, three, yeah. maybe three, if I'm mm-hmm. feeling really optimistic about it. But <laughs> four or five, definitely. It's it's my number four. I think behind Dark Knight being one, Prestige two, Interstellar three, and this is my four. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, this, I think, in terms of critical acclaim, is certainly Christopher Nolan's best, um, or at least up there. You know, you're looking at the 94 on Metacritic, but in terms of, like, Academy Awards, this got the Best Picture nomination. This is his only directing nomination. Um, he's gotten a few writing nominations for Inception and Memento, which he didn't get for this one. But, you know, also won for editing, sound mixing, and sound editing. Um, also received cinematography nomination, production design nomination, and... What I'm, I think what this most conveys, if you're looking at what it was nominated for, nominated for at the Oscars, it's sort of capitalizing on what Christopher Nolan does best in terms of like exploiting the craft of filmmaking. And it's like, it's so is that, beautiful. That, is, that what you're, is that what you're saying? It's his best because it has the, all this acclaim to it? it? It is technically best made, like technical from an aspect of like craft and whatnot. It is his best made movie because of the sort of undertaking that he took on. Okay. And then as a result, the critical acclaim that came with it. Okay. That makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense then. And what I, what I mean by that is like, because it sort of employs the best and the sort of the most use of what Christopher Nolan does best is sort of employed here in Dunkirk. Like, you know, uh, like the things that I get most geeky about, about this movie are, you know, it's the IMAX and whatnot is beautiful to look at, but also the fact that they, um, that they took like these IMAX camera, first off, they like restored all like the boats and the planes are, excuse me, uh, accurate to the actual time periods and whatnot. They're actually from the war periods. They restored these things so they could actually use them in the filming of the movie. So all the planes that you're seeing are actual planes that are accurate to that time period from that time period. All the boats that you're seeing on the mole and whatnot are accurate to that time period and they're actually from that time period. Um, And then like Christopher Nolan is, you know, he's like counterbalancing the weight of the plane and building it in a way that, in restoring it in a way that he can attach the IMAX camera on the wing of the plane, so he can you, actually get these aerial shots. Like, did you hear what happened with the IMAX camera in one of the planes? It almost drowned. Yeah, because it <laughs> fell into the water because he was literally strapping these cameras to everything, flying it. Like every scene that you're, there is almost zero 
CGI in this movie. Everything that you're seeing is actually happening on the screen, whether it be a plane being shot out of the air, the plane is actually falling into the water. It's not a CG plane dropping into the water. It's an actual plane that he bought from that time period, restored it to make it look like it's accurate to that time period, and then he shot it out of the sky and made it fall into the ocean. Like, it's just Christopher Nolan madness on beautiful display. Yeah, I think even Tar- Tarantino himself this year said that uh, mm. was it uh, Dunkirk is like a, a masterpiece. A masterpiece. He, he said yeah. he said it's one of his favorite movies of all time. Yeah, he's like rewatchables podcast. He was like thinking about like um, he was like making his list for his decade list. Yeah. His decade list, and yeah, he's like, yeah, maybe it's like my number three, maybe mm. from like the entire decade. He's this is back in like 2018, like, like a year after the this movie came out. He was already t- telling and saying saying this on the podcast that. Mm. I, in the moment when he was making his list, Dunkirk was number three in the entire decade. And, you know, if someone like Tarantino can see the quality in this film as a masterpiece, you know, it's pretty objective to say that this movie is very good, to say the least. Yeah, and and it, I think it goes back. I mean, like, I'm going to keep saying the same thing over and over again, but I don't think it can be understated with this movie. It's just a sort of the length that Christopher Nolan went to literally recreate this war. Um, and actually, that sort of leads us into a bit of a discussion about, like, what I've heard people criticize this movie for. And it's hmm. one of the few, if the only thing I've heard people criticize this movie for is, like, the fact that people feel like they don't connect with the characters. There's not a whole lot of emotional investment. Can and I, I think that can I say something? Yeah. That was the reason I didn't like it as much the first go around because I was so attached to this archetype of having backstories to your, to these individuals in war movies like The Pianist, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's mm-hmm. List, mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these movies that have very intricate character backstories. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one is just more of just the war itself and the people involved in it and how you know how realistic that. Nolan portrayed it as opposed to having a backstory for well, that's exactly a, a, main, a main character to say. That's exactly it. Is what I think Christopher Nolan's strategy in making this movie, um, on top of sort of dropping you into the reality of it because of the the surroundings and the materials and whatnot, is he was just basically trying to drop you in the middle of a war and make mm-hmm. that as re- and like literally, I think the only step that he could have gone further is to pull the 1917 and just do it in like a single sh- take, and that would have been like the only thing that would have taken a step further in terms of immersiveness. But what I mean to say is that I don't think Christopher Nolan, because the lead character has a name on like imdb and stuff but his name is never said in the movie none of the characters names are or fear, very few of the characters names are actually said in the movie and it's uh-huh. because in actual war especially in this war in like world war one world war two um in this time period in the heat of this kind of battle where you're pushed up against the front of the ocean and you're just basically fighting for survival you don't have time to pe- learn people's names you don't have time to make friends you're basically just grouping around with the people around you and fighting to live each and every minute of each and every day. And that's what I think this movie does so, so well and so effectively better than any other war movie does. So let me ask you first, first question. How did you feel the first time you saw this movie? Second question, has your opinion changed? Third question, how many times have you seen the movie? So I've seen it six times. Um, The first time I saw it, I loved it. And then the second time, so the first time I saw it, I saw, actually we saw it in the same theater. Oh yeah. Well done. Can I say like like that? Yeah. No, this is, okay, so, the whole thing about this movie when it came out was you were supposed to go see it in like a 70 millimeter mm-hmm. theater. Mm-hmm. So we, for me and Raj in our area, the only place was like in Tyson's Corner over in Virginia. So I bought my ticket. I didn't choreograph this with Raj at all. But I, I saw Raj. I, I saw you. We said hi. He was like, you know, I'm going to go watch Dunkirk. He's like, yeah, me too, obviously, because it was like an opening weekend. And the funniest thing happened is that we sat next to each other during the movie. <laughs> It was just like insane to me. Like 
we didn't choreograph this at all. <laughs> no, we we like yeah, we like ran out, we ran into each other like right outside of the movie theater, and then like I was like with family, and you were walking in, and then like yeah. we were literally like two seats over from one another. Like you were like right next to my family seats, which was ridiculous. Um, and this was like one of the few times that you and I didn't plan to go to a movie together, and we ended up still <laughs> sitting right next to each other. Um, but like, you know, I. What, what was I even saying? I don't even remember where that thought began. <laughs> Me neither. But um, I think the, the questions I asked you were, first time, how you felt about it, how many times have you seen it, and has your opinion right. changed since? Right, right. That's that's where I was going with it. So um, what I was thinking in terms of the first time I saw it was on that 70mm print, and then I went and saw it in IMAX after that. Yeah. And it certainly sort of grew in my estimation after seeing it in IMAX because although it wasn't 70 millimeter IMAX, it was still on the biggest screen possible and as immersive as it possibly could have been. And I like that, you know, it's, it's unbelievable how greatly that added to the sort of overall experience of it. It was just like seeing it on a proper IMAX screen is unmatched in my opinion. You know, you can watch it at home and you can love it. You can watch it on 70 millimeter and love it, but seeing, cause this movie was almost entirely shot in IMAX. Um, it, it is like, I think it's 90% shot on IMAX. Um, and just, you know, the beautiful landscapes of that beach and whatnot and the sort of sound design, it, it just really, really puts you in the heart of the moment more than any other thing could. And like from there, I've grown to appreciate it more and more, like dissecting it from different aspects, from the editing of it to the actual directing of it. And, and we'll discuss that in a couple of minutes, but I'll toss the question back to you and ask you the same thing. So in regards to my questions to you? Yes. Yes. Like how many times have you so, seen it? And then like how so, much has it grown? Okay. So first I've only seen it twice, once in theaters over at the 70 millimeter and we saw it together. And then now here at home and I put, put it on an Amazon prime and, you know, watched it from home. Um, first time around, as I said, I wasn't really attacked. I thought, I thought it was a solid movie. I liked the movie. I thought it was good. You know, it wasn't really as high as Raj was or as high as the other cinephiles I follow on Twitter were because of the fact that the characters didn't have a backstory and because, you know, I'm so used to seeing these backstories within, you know, war movies and having this sort of attachment to the main character, or even if you can argue that there is no main character in Dunkirk. Sure, yeah. So there is like, because it flip-flops between three different timelines and they're all have their own different, you know, important figure in, within that timeline. But, um, you know, first time, first time going around, solid movie, good movie. Second time around, I had a lot of fun with that. I thought it was very good, you know, being much more acclimated to Nolan's style of directing and knowing what I'm getting into the second go round, considering with the, the time shift and the way that Nolan decided to um, film this movie and portray the story in this movie, you know, having that in mind when watching it the second time go around, I liked it a lot more just because of the fact that I had that background information. And then, you know, thinking about the fact that, you know, this movie doesn't really need uh, a character specific backstory because this go around I saw it as you know the entire entity of like this the British you know military having mm -hmm. its its own you know sentient or its own character in, in a sense so I was attached I was looking at more from the perspective of the entire entity itself rather than one specific individual which is why I like them this more this second go around yeah and this is like a story that I think like so many British people are very much aware of but us as like Americans I I knew nothing about this story I, I I'm assuming that you're coming in the same boat as I am yeah so yeah this one was a darkest hour what came after this one right they came out like right around the same time. I think Darkest Hour was like December, and this was yeah. Same, no, Darkest so, Hour, Darkest Hour was though. like Darkest Hour was October, and this was in July. Oh wow, yeah. Because yes. then like because like, then I had that background of like 
it's a good thing I saw Dunkirk before watching uh, Darkest Hour because there's like references in that for uh, Gary Oldman's portrayal of Winston Churchill. And I was like, oh yeah, I saw, I saw that movie. <laughs> yeah, but like, it's like this story is so unknown to us and, and right. it's obviously known to that culture and that's why British, or sorry, that's why Christopher Nolan wanted to tell this story. Um, but it was so enlightening and, and you make a great point in that it, it sort of paints the, the military as its own sort of character and you're really invested. Yeah. You're not, you're invested in the characters and making sure that they get safe, but it's sort of the heart, the heart of the movie lies in like, and especially most, especially conveyed in those scenes on the, on the bridge with Kenneth Branagh's character where he's talking about home and getting home and getting back to our people and the sort of emotional crux of the movie, the emotion, the one emotional relief that is really like the only relief of tension in the entire movie. Finally at the end is when the boats arrive and it's the symbolism of, of a homeland and of that sort of connection that Christopher Nolan has with his home. Um, but also what these people probably felt and it really does a good job. Like, you know, people say that Christopher Nolan's movies are cold or unemotional that, that moment, the yeah. music swelling. And when you see the boats coming and these people coming to save mm -hmm. their friends and family, that gets that that gets me teared up every single time. It's such a beautiful, beautiful moment, and, and like this movie, I think really, really capitalizes on that because it's just nonstop tension, tension, tension with like Hans Zimmer's ticking clock score and whatnot. And then finally, you get this release, and I think it actually intentional by Christopher Nolan to give you that emotional release then, but also very, very effective. And it just sort of speaks to that sort of greater theme that you were just talking about about the heart of it being about the UK and the British and what what they sort of went through and how they survived. Yeah. So I think what even adds to that more is the fact that the way Nolan portrayed the soldiers is like, you know, they think from their perspective that their failures and like when they get home, they're going to get yelled at. Yeah. They're going yeah. to get things thrown at them. And uh. we're going to say like, you're, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Yeah. You lost to the, lost to the Germans. But when they do get there, you know, this is like, everyone's just happy that they survived. Yeah. You know, when they're on the train, they give they're them like, like so the beers and stuff food, like that. Yeah. Like, they're cheering them on. So it, it conflates that emotional impact from when they see the boats coming onto a, onto the Dunkirk beach. Sure. And you know, that, aspect that's like small maybe 15 20 minute sequence of emotional impact is what elevates this movie more because up until that point it's just like it's tension building it's you know the the violence of war and the 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 sensation of this you know enemy coming out of nowhere like this unseen enemy mm -hmm. we don't see the germans at all within this movie and they're always uh, just like in the back of their mind as well as ourselves like we're projecting ourselves onto these individuals and like oh shit where are they are they gonna come uh, are we gonna get off this beach so uh, like I think that's why Christopher Nolan made it so that these characters don't have these backstories so that we can project ourselves within the movie. That way we can like have a much more uh, POV kind of first person perspective because of the fact that we can just see ourselves within these characters. Yeah, I, I'm actually really glad that you brought up that point about the German soldiers and the fact that they're always on our mind, but we never actually see them until the end when Tom Hardy's character is captured. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, um, you know, Christopher Nolan has often been compared, you know, by us, but also as cinephiles to Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. But I think this is sort of his attempt at doing something that pays homage to Hitchcock because it's just such a masterclass in building suspense. And I, and I just said it here um, about like the score and whatnot adding to it. If you don't know about, like, first off, I think this is definitely up there with Hans Zimmer's best scores. But if you don't know the story behind that, 
the Hans Zimmer created this entire score based off the ticking of Christopher Nolan's stopwatch. So like that's why the no, entire no. It was a, it's a pocket watch. Or pocket watch. Sorry, yeah, pocket that's watch. How, that's how Chris Nolan's such a big nerd that he has a fucking pocket watch. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. A pocket watch. And so like Hans, he he has Hans Zimmer record this ticking, and it really adds to the sort of it's just you're you're on edge the entire time because it's like a ticking time bomb almost literally um and like a lot of christopher nolan's movies are ticking time bombs whether you look at like the dark knight or, or something like that but like this is very literally like a ticking time bomb because the little literal ticking is there the entire time in the background and it just helps to grow this momentum and this sort of anxiety in you um but it's also just the effectiveness of the filmmaking we talked about the immersiveness like putting you there in the heart of everything like in the cockpit with the fighters or on the beach running side by side as they're carrying a like a injured body to the boat like it's just anxiety after anxiety the moment from the trailer which unfortunately had to be cut because of that stupid extra where the plane is like flying overhead and the, the people are just there, on all the British soldiers are there on the dock, and they just look up, and like you just hear the sort of roaring of the plane. Mm-hmm. It's just such a masterclass in suspenseful filmmaking. An hour and like 45 minutes or so, but the entire time you're just like tight, you're tense, you're just waiting for that relief. It's 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 brilliant filmmaking. And the fa- and the fact that you know Christopher Nolan's commitment to historical accuracy even transferred itself into the casting process of this because he wanted he realized the fact that the people who fought in Dunkirk and in World War Two were young, were inexperienced, and were probably you know scared out of their minds. So when he was casting this movie, he wanted to find people that are unknowns, like people like Harry Styles, who this is like his acting debut. Yeah. Um, his name is Fionn Whitehead, I think. Yeah, Finn, Finn Whitehead is how Finn, it's, okay. it's spelled Fionn, but it's pronounced Finn, I think. Yeah, Finn Whitehead, like the biggest names in this movie are probably like Killian Murphy and, and Mark Rylance and Kenneth Branagh, but they're not like huge figures. They're part of the just part of the fold of like this military entity. Sure. So when he was casting like these like other like from the perspective of the of the mole, like mm-hmm. the beach scenes, mm-hmm. all these characters, like, you know, young and inexperienced actors mm-hmm. as the way mm-hmm. that the soldiers were as young and inexperienced soldiers. Mm-hmm. So that just extends itself to how committed Nolan is to make this, making this feel as authentic as possible. And, yeah. you know, one small thing, um, one small critique I want to say is the way that Nolan did this movie was the fact that, you know, the sensation of time when the char- when the characters were either on the beach, on the, on the sea, or mm-hmm. in the air mm-hmm. is how he wanted it to be feeling authentic. So when mm-hmm. you're on the beach, like you're there the entire time, you're feeling every, you know, sense of fear and dread and tension. Mm-hmm. And in the, the sea, you know, it's just like a one day voyage. Mm-hmm. And in the air, so it's like one hour because of the fuel. Yeah. But I couldn't really feel the extension of the differences in time within these three different timelines. Sure. Like I would say, from the perspective of the movie, at least the mole scenes at the beach felt like maybe like a day because you do have that night scene where they're trying to get out of that sinking boat mm-hmm. um i guess the the boat scenes itself where it just says it was a day instead of you know is like feels like a couple of hours sure yeah and the one where they're in the plane with tom hardy the, the air that, is an hour yeah that one does feel like an hour so that's like the only tidbit i want to say that kind of makes me you know not say is is a make it as good of a movie as it could have been, but I mean, this doesn't take away from the movie at all. No, sure. I have a couple comments on that. So I think that that's also Christopher Nolan intentionally trying to put you in the heart of war because especially with that beach thing, he, that 
that night sequence is intentional and you sort of get the hazy, you know, broken sleep on the beach where the water is like rushing onto you while you're asleep and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I think it's to add to that immersiveness of being in that environment of war because everything just bleeds together and you have no sense of reality, you have no sense of days anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're basically still just fighting for survival day after day, minute after minute, second after second. So that's my interpretation of it. I can definitely see where you're coming from though and why others might interpret it differently. Right. But will I will, what I will say is that is actually, you know, this movie won the Oscar for best editing and Christopher Nolan movies are often pretty sloppily edited, if I'm being completely <laughs> honest with you. But this, I think, is very deserving of that Oscar. And this is sort of the example that I give to people because a lot of people don't really know what editing is. And you and I, as hardcore movie fans, understand that there's three steps to the making of a movie. There's the writing. There's the directing and then the editing is the sort of final closing of the story because everything can be reshaped in the editing room. Yeah. And why this movie works so well and why the editing is so important here is because of the way that those three narrative uh, lines come together. And it makes for probably the most thrilling and one of the best moments of Christopher Nolan's entire career is when the three timelines converge and you right. realize sort of what is going on there. And mm -hmm. that is, that is the brilliance of what good editing can be. Lee Smith is, has been a great editor for a long time. He's won multiple Oscars, been nominated for multiple Oscars, but like this is sort of the epitome of what good editing can do. It brings the storylines together, recontextualizes the other 90 minutes that you've just seen and really gives you that. It's the sort of revelation and the sort of quote unquote twist or surprise or whatever in a Christopher Nolan movie that you expect without actually being a twist or a surprise. It's just the sort of timelines converging. Um, and it's just like, you have to have a good editor and you have to have precision in terms of the way that you stitch those storylines together to make for that moment to hit as well as it does. And that like that moment, the music, the sort of cutting of the storyline, the way that you see the characters overlapping finally and you realize, oh, this scene actually happened at this moment and now this is happening mm -hmm. to this character while this is happening right. to that character. And then you see Tom Hardy flying overhead and it's just like, it's, um, it's masterful. It's, there's no better word for it. That's why I wanted to say that, you know, it's a continuing conversation of the fact that why it's so important to rewatch Christopher Nolan's movies multiple times. Mm -hmm. Because the first go around, you're like, what the hell's going on? Did we just see this? What's the time period <laughs> that I'm watching right now? Yeah, yeah. But then once you, you know, experience it the first time and you start to puzzle these things together and you watch it again, it starts to make more sense and you can enjoy it more. Yeah. And one thing I, you just mentioned is the fact that this movie is less than two hours. Yeah. Which is weird for a Christopher Nolan movie who reached like two and a half to three hour movie. So, <laughs> you know, I was like, thank God, man, I've got to watch this movie for this podcast. It's like, yeah. I got to sit down, I got to make time for it because like Interstellar was like almost three hours, 10 was like two and a half hours, but this was like a, you know, a solid, you know, hour About 46. Or something hour, like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, it's but, good. Now I was gonna say the one standout for me for this movie is Hoytema's cinematography. Oh, it's so good. He every every scene just feels like a painting. Like the his hues of his usage of like blues, greens, and browns just give this texture, like this soft velvety texture to the film that just makes me like I wasn't awe the entire time just watching it because of how well framed and how well you know the color palette chosen for this movie, just how well that all that was cohesive to the entire narrative. Like sure. there, like even with the yellows on Kenneth Branagh's coat for his, sure. uniform, yeah, it just, like, popped off the screen. It just, yeah. 
the contrast was felt so great. And, you know, yeah. Hoytema is like one of those cinematographers I feel like is kind of underrated. Like people do talk about him, but they're not talking about him like the way they talk about Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give Hoytema his due and they just go and just like marvel at how well colored and framed this movie is. Yeah, and this can sort of bring us full circle to what I was geeking out and sort of got ahead of myself with at the beginning <laughs> is the technical sort of filmmaking side of it. I've talked about, you know, what Christopher Nolan's doing and Hoytema is very much a part of this, but the, the biggest thing, and it's just like, I love talking about it so much because it just bring it gives me awe every single time I even just think about it. The fact that he's, you know, literally stri- IMAX cameras first off are massive. They're not your typical filmmaking cameras. They're huge. They're hundreds of pounds. They're heavy things. They're bulky things. There are featurettes on like YouTube and whatnot that you can watch to properly understand what went into this. And maybe I'll even put that in the episode description. If you're interested, there's like a five minute clip and like a 30 minute clip, but like it's Christopher Nolan and Hoyt Van Hoytema talking about how what I talked about earlier, they're like, they're, they have to restore these old fashioned planes and that's not an easy feat first off, but then they, what they have to do is they have to make one side of the plane heavier because you have to strap the hundreds of pound IMAX camera to the other plane. So you can get that sort of shot of the plane in the sky. And like the people that are like, you know, Jack Loudon and Tom Hardy, they're actually flying, flying those spitfires in the air. That's not stunt actors or anything these are the actual actors who went through proper training to learn how to fly the thing so they could strap the camera to the plane and actually get those shots in the air back check back check yeah actually those cockpits were fitted for two people but one they was like, in, the, in like this, the actual pilot and then the other guy this, was like in this featurette they talk about oh, yeah, how, yeah, the, yeah. how the actors actually had to learn how to fly it so there are certainly scenes that have stunt doubles in them and where there's two people in the cockpit but there are also very much scenes where like i think the scenes where the planes are cl- crashing oh, those yeah. are stunt doubles and whatnot but there are actually scenes where hardy is like actually flying the pl- like plane and you're getting an actual shot of it um and that just adds to the cinematography that you were just talking about because you can't replicate that in a computer, the sort of reality of seeing like the three planes splitting off from behind and whatnot. You actually have to have that camera in the air following those planes and getting that shot in reality. And it just sort of adds to how, like, I, I'm actually shocked that Hoytema didn't win the cinematography award for this. And I think it was because he was going up against Deacons for Blade Runner, right, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that was his big competition there. But it's just like, it's incredible what he did yeah. with the cameras. If it was Hoytema any other year outside of Blade Runner, he would have won it. But the fact that it was like, you know, Deacon's first Oscar win for Blade yeah. Runner is like just went against him. But the, yeah. this does not take away from the fact that, you know, it's incredible cinematography. I just want to say, I think the reason that Nolan is always <clears throat> readily, um, you know, just trying to shoot with IMAX is that he's secretly ripped. Like he doesn't care about the weight of the camera, so he has like he has like this huge chiseled body under his like baggy clothing that he wears. I don't know, it's just a theory. It's, there's like um, if you like, <laughs> what I also love about this movie is you can Google like behind the scenes Dunkirk, and like you can see pictures of Chris Nolan like on the beach strapping this giant camera to his shoulder, or like yeah. there's there's like shots of him in the middle of the ocean just like floating in the water with like scuba gear next to like a plane, like a plane just in the ocean, and he has like the IMAX camera next to him like, like all bagged up so it doesn't get water damage. Like He's secretly a bodybuilder. It's so funny to look at these pictures because <laughs> Nolan is like. He's a kind of awkward looking dude. Let's be completely honest here. <laughs> and like to see him like just 
going out there and really doing the dirty, like getting getting like dirt under your fingernails sort of filmmaking aspect of it. It's so cool to see that kind of stuff because they're most filmmakers nowadays are going to sit in like a booth like 20 feet away from like where the actual action is happening and they're not even going to be behind the camera. So to see Christopher Nolan like floating in the middle of the ocean with Hoyt Van Hoytema like holding a camera to a plane, <laughs> like it's ridiculous. I love it it's, so much. It's very much guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah, and it's crazy yeah. because he got such a big budget to do it. Like guerrilla filmmaking is usually the Safties, right? Who are like right. working on zero budget and whatnot. Christopher Nolan is working with like hundreds of millions of dollars and doing this kind of crazy stuff. And like, I, I, why I say I, Dunkirk, I think is his best movie is because it employs just the things that make Christopher Nolan a special filmmaker. And it sort of escalates them to an 11. And like, he just gets to go full on, like, I'm going to be practical here. I'm going to do this with these real things. And it's going to be historical. So I get to bring all these old planes and all these old outfits. And it's just like, proper implementation of what christopher nolan does best to the best degree that he can do it i'm trying to see right now i'm looking at the because i remember during our tenant episode i mentioned the fact that tenant is uh 280 cg mm. shots mm-hmm. and it's his lowest mm-hmm. and the fact that tenant is just so much a bigger spectacle than uh, dunkirk is i just wanted to see what the CG shot amount was for Dunkirk, but I can't see it on here without... Yeah, I don't want to make have... a noise when we're talking. <laughs> no, no, you're good. I don't have the exact number either. That's something that I'd have to do a little bit of research on. I didn't even think about that before I started recording. Um, but I, you know, even if there is whatever number of CG shots there are in this movie, you cannot tell. I don't think there's a single moment where you can tell that a shot is CG. Like, I, I can't pinpoint one off the top of my head. I don't know if you can either. The entire thing looks like it was shot straight up on location well it was shot on location but like everything was like yeah. practical like that's sure. how nolan does it so he doesn't yeah. really if you can find a way to make it not pra- or practical he'll do it exactly um is there uh between like the three storylines is there one that you like best or you prefer is there anything that stands out to you from any of the three storylines um trying to think mm-hmm. it's between the beach and the and the boat scenes the boat. because most of like actually no because even with the plane scenes you get like a lot a lot of great dog fighting sequences Ah, mm-hmm. uh, god that's a hard question let me think so, uh, yeah I'll, I'll say that like i think the beach stuff the, the stuff on the mole is my favorite stuff because i think that's where the most tension is but i want to give a shout out to the boat stuff and mark rylance's character in this movie like i know when this movie was coming out and it was making its award run people were like talking about Who's going to get nominated for an Oscar? It's obviously not going to be, you know, your young guys. Um, even though somebody like a Harry Styles is actually a revelation and really good in this movie. This is this was my first time seeing Barry Keoghan before seeing him in, like, Sacred Deer and whatnot. So this is my introduction to him as well, and he's really good in this movie. Um, but Mark Rylance's character is so unique because, like, in the center of this tension-filled experiment, every time you're on that boat with Mark Rylance and he's talking to you, you just feel very at ease. And, like, I think it's a real testament to the way that character is constructed, you know, with the backstory with his son and whatnot, and the sort of thing that's driving him to want to go save his soldiers because of that commitment to his son. But it's also the performance that Mark Rylance gives. He's just... He, he knows the headspace of that person, who that person is, somebody who has a connection to the war through a loved one that he lost, and he's going to sacrifice whatever he must to go and save these other people who are in the same boat that his son was in. Um, and he knows that sort of dedication to those people, and I think that that lends, to, lends an interesting dynamic to that character. And uh, I can't think of any other actors off the top of my head that would have delivered that sort of calming ease that Mark Rylance brings to that character. I think it's that- actually like a brilliant performance. That was my 
how do you say like I was just trying to make the comparison because like the mole scenes is like mm-hmm. a like, tension filled spectacle mm-hmm. and but like with the boat scenes is much more character driven and mm-hmm. much more slower paced and you know mm-hmm. gives you time to breathe and I think that like that balance is why this movie is so good because we get both of them mm-hmm. and great and good doses like it doesn't feel like it's leaning too much on one side or the other mm-hmm. so um i would say uh, i would say mole boat plane okay 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 um, i found I, it right here i found it right here it's a uh, tenet is 280 okay. and it's dunkirk at 430 okay. dark knight even has less it has 370 so it's a really tenet dark knight than dunkirk that surprises me actually and I, I think i know the sequence that a lot of those shots happen is probably the explosion in the ocean um when the when the oil boat Mm-hmm. crashes and the fire happens there i think a lot of that is cg because you have to put the people in the fire and they couldn't do that with the actors so i'm assuming that's where actually a lot of those cg shots are held in that one particular sequence because mm-hmm. um, there's no other scene that i can think of that i could pinpoint and if they're you know wherever those scenes are stitched in there they're brilliantly done because you really can't tell that they are I, CG. maybe the scene where um finn whitehead's character saves harry styles from being crushed from the boat Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the beginning of the movie could be CG because I wouldn't think that Nolan would put Harry Styles at, at the risk of his life. <laughs> sure, fair enough. First of a shot. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, um, there, There is another thought that I wanted to bring up about the practice. I could go like 100% full geek about this movie because I've, I, I just I love the sort of practical use of uh, or the practicality of the filmmaking that Christopher Nolan went into for this movie. And like some of the stuff on top of the plane stuff that I love is like, you know, the shots in the mole when there's actually explosions like blasting up and blasting the water and breaking the bridge. Like those are actually happening on the screen. Again, those are in like those behind the scenes featurette or, you know, that iconic shot that's like on the posters and whatnot where Finn, uh, Finn Whitehead's ca- uh, characters like head hands are on his head and he's right in front of the camera. Right. Yes, right, right, like, right. and you know, there's like explosions happening in the background behind him. Those, you know, that's a legitimately captured on screen shot where those explosions are actually happening and they have to frame the camera right next to his face to capture those explosions at that angle. And you could see bodies flying. So, what Christopher Nolan did there is he just put dummies on the explosion and then you just right. see <laughs> an actual body onto the, like, onto the dummies to make sure it was safe. But, like, it's just, it's crazy. The fact that he did all of this stuff is insane to do, me. Do you remember the marketing for this? Like, I've referenced this several times. Like, it wasn't until Dunkirk that I realized how big of a deal Christopher Nolan is. Yeah, At yeah, the very yeah. least, how big of a Christopher, how big of a deal Christopher Nolan is to Raj. Because I remember him, like, <laughs> sending me a DM on Twitter. He's like, it's like, yo, yo, there's like a, there's like a live um thing for facebook for dunkirk and nolan's gonna be like doing oh something. my god i forgot about this it was, like, it was like a camera on the beach for like 24 no, hours or something. it was like the camera on the dock of the mole i was like why the fuck should i be watching this <laughs> wasn't it like a black and white too yeah it was it was weird i don't know why i, I like i sat there and watched that entire thing too i don't i don't know that just goes to show how dedicated i am to nolan um that we we discussed a lot in a pretty short period of time. Did you have any other like closing thoughts or anything else that you wanted to talk about before we uh, close things out? I would I, maybe I just want to probably point this out that this, I think this is my favorite favorite shot and like favorite frames out of Christopher Nolan's filmography just because of Hoytema's mm. you know color palette and hues or whatever in the frames. I, think I know where you're going. Um, what do you mean? Where am I going? With the shot, I'm assuming you're talking about the plane on fire yeah, at the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> It's incredible. It all together. It's incredible. It's so good. Um, I think that's all I have to say. I think I've said everything I wanted to say. Yeah, I've 
I talked really fast and I talked a lot here, but I hope I got everything out. I'm sure there's something I forgot. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think that this movie, I think it's Christopher Nolan's best because it employs what he does best um, on a massive scale and he sort of hits it out of the park with every stretch. Um, you add to that the fact that he has a mix of talented young actors and experienced actors in different capacities of roles. Kenneth Branagh is also great. We didn't really talk a lot about him, but he's so good in that small role that he has on the mole. Um, Hans Zimmer's score is incredible. Hoyt Van Hoytema's uh, oh yeah. Well, there's one thing I wanted to mention. There's like the fact that this is why it's such a good thing to give auteur filmmakers big budgets and the freedom that they want with how Warner Brothers deals with Christopher Nolan because then we get movies like this. Exactly, exactly. And that's what we're getting with stuff like whether it's original or not. But we just got the Dune trailer today, which we'll talk about on later episode um, later in the week. Um, but you know, if there are filmmakers who continue to establish them or start, prove themselves as capable of doing something incredible, they are going to get budgets like this. And Christopher Nolan in particular, because he's going to get the budget, he's going to get the critical reception, but he's also going to get the money. And um, this is sort of that on full display. You know, he got the sort of credit after doing Dark Knight trilogy and Inception and Warner Brothers was like, what do you want to do next? And he's like, I want to do this war movie shot almost entirely in IMAX, which is expensive. And I want to bring these spitfires from World War II to life. And that's expensive. And I want to sink a boat on the beach. That's expensive. Um, but it's exactly what you're saying. It gives filmmakers who are capable of doing these things the ability to do them and it's better for cinema because of it because this movie is truly like a masterpiece um i say that word a lot and i don't think i always mean it <laughs> but in this case i i truly mean it i think this is going to go down as like you know the afi top 100 this is going to end up on one of those kind of lists one day i have very little doubt about that um and and i think it will probably be remembered at down the road at christopher nolan's best achievement of his career well, I'm, I'm not. I can't really follow that up as being as high on Raj <laughs> on the movie as he is. Yeah. But I, do, I will say, yeah, it's a very good movie. I moved my rating from a three and a half stars on Letterboxd to a four after yeah. the second go around. Uh, five, five or bust, five or bust. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think what this is like is it's following Memento, Interstellar, mm -hmm. Dunkirk, and Tenet are like his five, like the movies that he's like, like the, his most control because usually he the rest with Nolan. Or Goyer, mm -hmm. but like this was like just him, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think maybe going forward, you probably, can probably expect more of just you know just straight Nolan. He like he produced, he directed, he wrote this movie. Mm -hmm. and I think that's why he likes to do his movies best, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it and it showed like you know the achievement is there, the Oscar credit is there, the critical reception is there, the box office is there. Um, it shows. It, it definitely shows on paper, and, and it definitely shows sort of in his clout. Because after Dunkirk, you know, he followed that up with Tenet, and the hype around Tenet was as big as any other one of his movies. So um, I think it's you know it's it's just another sort of uh, feather in his cap, and just another testament to what he can do as a director. Um, but that'll bring us to a close for this episode. Thank you for joining us. Um, be sure to check out our resources. I'll put the links to those featurettes in there, but also be sure to check out our resource our resources on Black Lives Matter in our episode notes. Um, Sam let people know where they can find you online you can find me on my twitter at sam zero so and on my instagram at sam osorio o-s-o-r-i-o and you can find me at rod 236 um we'll be back talking dune trailer as well as a lot of other news a lot of news dropped like today alone um so it'll be another busy episode this weekend so come back and join us then.